Please uh, join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 14. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to the author now and ask for his blessing. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang repeatedly, would you be pleased to teach us your way? We know your way leads to life, and every other way leads to death. And Father, there are so many voices out there calling, come this way or go that way. Help us to hear the voice of our shepherd, Jesus, calling us to follow him, to be fed by him, to be protected by him, to rest beside those still waters and enjoy that green pasture. Father, be pleased to open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, believe it or not, the first missionary journey is about to conclude. We believe it was about two years that Paul and Barnabas and maybe others were away from Antioch and Syria. Um, The call started a long time ago. The call to go. Remember Genesis 12, Abram? Go, the Lord says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a call. What faith it took to go out not knowing where he was going. We heard a moment ago, a few minutes ago, the call of the servant of the Lord who the New Testament makes clear is is Jesus from Isaiah 49. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant was called to go. The Great Commission, the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, the resurrected Lord before his ascension calls his disciples together and says, go therefore and make disciples just in Jerusalem, just in Israel, just in this part of the world. No, go and make disciples of all nations. Earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 9, we saw the conversion of Paul or Saul to the apostle Paul and and we heard his call and we read this in Acts chapter 9 verses 15 through 16, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul is called to go to the Gentiles, to go beyond Israel, beyond the Jews, to the pagans, to bring them the good news of the gospel. Now, last week we uh, were in Lystra, Acts 14, verses 8 through the first part of of 20. And and where did we leave off? Remember last week? We left off where Paul was left for dead. But he revived. And he stayed in Lystra, but then the next day, it looks like headed to, to Derby. And that's where we'll be on this last leg of the journey 
back to Antioch and Syria. I want to start uh, today's text by going back actually to Acts 13, the first few verses. Um, If you would turn back to Acts 13. Um, This is when Paul and uh, Barnabas are are sent off, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And beginning in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Who sent Paul and Barnabas? The church sent. Well, who sent these men? The Holy Spirit sent. It was a, it was a call to go. And now we pick up in Acts 14, and I'll just read all of 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, that is Paul, he rose up and entered the city. That would be Lystra. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of all of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I want to begin today sort of toward the end of our passage. Uh, We see a report to the sending church. Um, I'm in pretty regular communication with uh, Mark and Sarah Carey in the Czech Republic as they serve with um, uh, Serge uh, in Brno, Czech Republic. And We are now helping to support them financially, and in one way, we're a little bit of a sending church to them, and and I'm looking forward to, he's going to be uh, communicating uh, with us, probably via some kind of video, um, uh, uh, but letting us know about the work, and one day when they're back on furlough, they can actually come and be with us and give a report, and that's kind of what is happening here. Paul and Barnabas come back to the sending church, and and they... give a report, and they say in verse 26, mission accomplished. We read the work that they had fulfilled. They fulfilled the work that they had been sent to do. And then in verse 27, uh, the second half is kind of a great summary statement. Um, Paul, Barnabas, describe your trip. Well, in a word, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Yes, they initially started going to the synagogues in various cities, and then, but in those synagogues, you had Gentile God-fearers kind of in and around the synagogue. But pretty soon, by the time you get to Lystra, it's all Gentiles. And so they summarized their missionary journey by saying God had opened a door to the Gentiles. It's, it's one of Paul's favorite expressions, and, and Luke, I think, is just 
He, he knows of this. Um, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 2 and Colossians 4, Paul speaks of going through a door. And here, it's the door that God has opened so that the Gentiles would believe. An open door of faith. And I, I want us to think uh, briefly about the dual aspect of saving faith. That is coming to faith in Jesus Christ and growing in faith in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Derby um, is about 60 miles southeast of Lystra. Jump back with me to verse 20 and 21. And what do we read? 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They preached and they made disciples. They, it's evangelism, it's coming to faith in Jesus, and it's discipleship. It's, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him, to learn to obey all that he has commanded? Some of you, most of you, were here with us a few weeks ago when Anna joined the church. And I remember making the comment that the first two membership vows of the church speak of coming to faith in Jesus. And the last three verses, or uh, vows three through five, speaking of, of growing in faith in Jesus. And I think, unfortunately, many of us, and I include myself, we only think about people coming to faith. We don't think as much, or at least I don't, about people growing in faith. It's a both and, it's not an either or. You remember one way to structure Acts, not only is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, not only Jews for the first half, Gentiles for the second half, but it's, it's Peter for the first half and Paul for the second half. And, and who is Paul? Paul is the preacher and Paul is the pastor. He proclaims and he cares. From Derby, Paul could have said, hey, Barnabas, my hometown, Tarsus and Sicilia, it's just a little bit further east. And in fact, it's on the way home to Antioch. Let's go that way. But no, they did not go that way. They didn't go east. They went back west. They retraced their route back. They're going to go all the way back. They skip Cyprus. They kind of take a quick boat trip straight to Antioch in Syria. Because more pressing than travel convenience drove the decision to revisit. Sometimes I'm listening to my phone tell me where to go and it says um, a, a, a quicker route will be this way. And you can confirm or deny it. The quicker route is before them. Paul and Barnabas deny it. Why? Ministry. You see, ministry is not convenient. Oh, have I been learning that through the years. Ministry is just not convenient. For anybody, for a pastor standing here, for someone in the pew, ministry is inconvenient. Think about a parent and a child. Get up in the middle of the night to help the child? Sacrifice time and effort to help your child grow and mature? Yes. Isn't that what ministry is about? Helping people grow and mature? It's not convenient. It's not only out of the way. Where are they going? They're going back to places that it wasn't easy. It was difficult. See, in each 
city. There was now an outpost of the coming kingdom of God and there were newborn disciples of Jesus that needed cared for. Back on the 5th of July when Jason was with us over the summer, you may remember his message from 1 Thessalonians 2 entitled, The Word of God at Work. Verse 8 says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very, but also our own selves, because you had become so dear to us. That's in Thessalonica, my friends. It's also here in Galatia. Paul and Barnabas The people had become dear to them. They wanted to not only share the gospel, but their very lives. They wanted to do life-on-life discipleship. They're going to go back to cities where they were persecuted, stoned, driven out. They're following up all of these professions of faith. Um, Years ago, I was learning a bit about evangelism. Uh, There in Norfolk, Virginia, I was at the uh, Naval Air Station. It was probably 1996, and I was so excited because the week before, uh, some airmen from one of the squadrons there had made a profession of faith in Christ, and I was excited. Wow, new life in Christ. And I went back to see him the next week, and he wasn't there, and went back the following week, wasn't there. And then I found out he was there. He just didn't want to get together. You see, my friend who was mentoring me, who was instructing me, said this. I'll never forget it. There's nothing harder than following up a non-believer. Did you hear that? There's nothing harder than following up a non-believer. And what what kind of follow-up do people need? They need to learn God's word. They need to learn to pray. They need to learn to enjoy fellowship with other believers. You see, that young sailor He may have made a profession of faith, but it didn't seem like he had a possession of faith because he didn't want to have anything to do with God's word. He didn't want anything to do with prayer. He didn't want to do anything with God's people. So was that a genuine profession of faith? I mean, the last time I checked, newborn babies are hungry. Hungry. If you don't feed them, they starve and they will do anything, right, to get food. That's a new believer, isn't it? And so, thankfully, there was not just that experience. There were other experiences. And I'm sure that's what Paul really was overjoyed with when he could follow up new believers. And so our text today draws our attention to two important tasks for growing in faith. That is discipleship. That aspect of saving faith. The two tasks that Luke highlights in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas are, first, Strengthen the believers, strengthen the believers, and second, organize the churches. Strengthen the believers and organize the churches. Look with me at verse 22. They're back in the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. What are they doing there? They're strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, how are believers strengthened? First, encouragement. Now, encouragement is often overused and sometimes abused. Yes, I do it. I overuse it. I do abuse it. And yet, abuse of the truth doesn't invalidate the truth, does it? No. 
encouragement to continue to persevere, to don't give up. Romans 15, 5, how does Paul describe God? The God of endurance and encouragement. My friends, have you ever thought that God would have lost patience with you? Not only are we called to endure, God endures with us. It's amazing, isn't it? The God of endurance and encouragement. And what are they to continue in? They are to continue what? In the faith. And there are a number of expressions in the New Testament that describe a recognizable doctrine, a body of doctrine, core, central beliefs. Uh, We read in Jude uh, to contend for the faith that was once delivered for the saints. When we looked at our study of the Apostles' Creed, there were... It wasn't written by the apostles, but it certainly captured in the early centuries of the church the core teachings of the apostles. Continue in the faith. Now, where, where is this? Galatia, right? Do you remember Paul's letter to the Galatians? You remember in the first chapter, he had to rebuke these same Gentile Christians in Galatia. Why? Because they were quickly turning away from the gospel to another gospel, a different gospel. Oh, my friends, strengthening first by encouraging them to continue. In 10 seconds, in your mind, tell me who is encouraging you. Oh, no, no, don't tell me. Tell yourself, excuse me. Who is encouraging you? Um, Kids, it's a test time. There's three blanks. Write the names of the three people that are encouraging you today. Now, if you can't think of any, maybe you want to ask the question, do I want to be encouraged? Am I receptive to being encouraged? Am I open and approachable? So the next question is this, um, who are you encouraging? It's the next question. It's got three blanks. Name three people to yourself who you are encouraging right now, today, yesterday, tomorrow, to continue in the faith. Because if you haven't already wanted to quit, as my same mentor told us, you know, perseverance doesn't start until you want to quit. Endurance really doesn't kick into gear until you come to that point and you see the crossroad and you're like, I want to go back. I want to take the easy road. Encouragement. And the second thing, the second way they are strengthened is they are warned that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, as we've seen thus far in our scriptures study You know, warnings are aspects of God's grace. Warnings are good things. The warnings on your dashboard of your car are are kind gifts from the manufacturer. If you don't heed them, you get into trouble. The kingdom of God. Now here, it means not so much just the arrival of the kingdom of God. But here specifically, it's that moment of final vindication that the believer enters after death. And so there's going to be trouble and difficulty and tribulation all the way to then. 
This warning is a heads up. Forewarned is forearmed. Remember Jesus telling his disciples, in the world you'll have tribulation. I wonder if that's part of our gospel message. Now, of course, that can't be like the first thing we say, but it's certainly something that we need to say, that following Jesus is not easy. It's difficult. It will cost you your life. But as you know, those of you that are following Jesus, it's the abundant life. It's the abundant life. We heard earlier, the Lord told Ananias about Saul that how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul is not going to just talk about suffering. Paul's going to be a model of suffering, an example of suffering and how to do it well. The hope of the gospel puts present troubles into perspective and shows them as truly insignificant when compared to the glory to be revealed when God's kingdom arrives in its fullness, as Paul tells the church in Rome. So there's encouragement and there's warning. Have you thought about this, that most of Paul's suffering Is it the hands of his own countrymen, the Jews, the religious people? Yes, there are pagans that get brought into it and there are godless. But, you know, Paul, as we'll see in Acts 17 in Athens, he's talking and engaging with pagans. He's often getting beat up by his fellow countrymen. You know, isn't that interesting? The Jews, people who claim they know Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, They're beating up Paul because they don't know the living and true God revealed in Jesus Christ. And Paul would say, hey, that's me on my way to Damascus. I am obedient to the Lord. And because of that, I am putting Christians to death. Let's just say Paul had a change of heart. He had a new heart. He saw that Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, from all time promised the Messiah, promised Jesus. So what are the tribulations, what are the troubles that you're going through right now, today, at this moment? Who's helping you? Or have you decided that I can do it myself, which is, I think, the first sentence I learned. I do it myself. Who are you sharing your trials and troubles with? Because the next question is, who are you helping in their trials and troubles? The Navy had this great thing called the Navy Mutual Aid Society. You know, sailors got into trouble. They needed extra funds. They, they had, you know, more, uh, more thing, uh, you know, the, the paycheck ran out. You had the Navy Mutual Aid. The Navy would help the sailor. And, and sailors would help sailors. That's the Navy. How about the church? Mutual aid through trials and difficulties and troubles. So Paul 
not only is going to strengthen the individual believer in the faith, but also organize the church. He's going to, he and Barnabas are going to make provisions for the stability and care of the community of faith. Um, look with me at uh, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, when they appointed elders for them in every church. Um, here is the organization of the church. Y'all, some of you were here in April of 2016 when this church was organized as a separate and particular congregation of the PCA. And one of the, the things that had to happen is we had to be self-governing. There had to be elders ordained and installed. And in established congregations, as you'll see, as Paul writes his letters to the churches, uh, all members choose these, these spiritual leaders. But in these young congregations, in these pagan areas where people come to faith in Christ, the apostles themselves are appointing with prayer and fasting. They're setting them apart. It's a special calling. They're finding men with spiritual maturity and wisdom and, and leaders. And here, notice, they appointed elders. They did not appoint an elder It's the plurality of elders. It's more than one. It's one of the great blessings of the Presbyterian form of government. It's not a one-man show. And that is a blessing not only to the flock, but it's a great blessing to the shepherds themselves. You may remember around that time we heard some messages, Jesus our shepherd from uh, Psalm 23, and then the person and work of the elder from 1 Peter 5. We heard about his calling to know and lead and feed and protect the sheep. This is what Paul is wanting to see put in place. Men whose manner, it's delight, not duty. It's self-service, not self-interest. It's modeling, being a model, not a master. You know, as I was thinking about this and and I heard this expression, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, um, I thought that sometimes it's important to recognize that it's it's not so much and only what the elders do, it's what the elders don't do. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that every week, well, not so much lately, but used to, I would get stuff in the mail Grow your church this way. Grow your church that way. On and on and on. Now it all comes on email. But if we did all of that stuff, we would be crushed. Every good idea doesn't need to be done. And that's one of the great blessings of elders. It's not only do they do things, but they also don't do things. Sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Elders lead the church in repentance and faith, growing as humble men. Um, I have a pastor friend I respect an awful lot who has served in um, um, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and now he's teaching seminary students out in California. And he told me and others once that often at the beginning of a session meeting where the elders get together This is one of the prayers at the beginning of the meeting. Father, forgive us for the sins we are about to commit. You know, that's not flippant. 
It's not a sign that they don't take God's word seriously and his holiness with utmost reverence. But it reveals they're human. They're men. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to fail. When I first heard that after being shocked, I realized the great wisdom and tenderness of that prayer. Oh, may we approach, may we all approach relationships and situations. Father, forgive me for the sins which I am about to commit. Not flippant, not abdicating our responsibility, but recognizing the power is not in us. It's in the Lord. So they appoint leaders. And secondly, they entrust the church to the care of the Lord. Look with me again at verse 23. And it's not often that I wrestle with the original language, but I wrestled this time. And I'll tell you why. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, most all of you see a comma, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Well, there's a lot of discussion of who's the them. You know, who's committed them to the Lord? Is it the elders or is it everybody in the church? Well, I did some pretty lengthy study and I've come to the conclusion that committed them to the Lord is talking about all of the folks in the church, including the elders. And so you could read it like this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, comma, they committed them, that is, you know, they appointed elders for them, that's the church, they committed them, the church, to the Lord in whom they believed. Paul and Barnabas go back because they love these new believers and they can depart They can leave because they trust God. You see, they know that the church is in hands stronger and surer than men. The church is in the hand of God. Now that being said, God's sovereignty does not eliminate the need for man's responsibility. You see, they commit them to the Lord. It doesn't abdicate responsibility to to be wise and careful leaders, but... They're committing them to the ones, to the one who really does care. Because it's God's church, and because it's the body of Christ, they, Paul and Barnabas, they don't have to worry, they don't have to fear, they don't have to hold on tightly to the church. You see, they leave behind the scripture. They've got apostles to teach, they've got elders and pastors to shepherd. And they've got the Holy Spirit there to guide, to protect, and bless. Whenever I'm in trouble, whenever I'm in distress, or whenever I can't see up one way or down the other, I often go to a friend and he reminds me of two things. First, God's got this. God's got this. I tell you, When I hear that rightly, everything changes because what I had been doing is holding on too tightly and God's got this. I need to let it go and trust the Lord. And then he follows that up with this. 
God loves you. Wow. He reminds me of two things. God is great and God is good. He's got this and he loves you. Look at this, how it ends. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, Paul and Barnabas and other leaders are going to want folks to see that the one in whom they believed loves them. Have you all thought about this? The one in whom you believe loves you. The one in whom you believe loves you. What a great message for the world. What a great message for Bellevue. What a great message for ourselves in the mirror. Ask yourself the question, do I believe that the one I believe in really loves me? As I am, to borrow the hymn from the Billy Graham crusade, you know, just as I am. Of course, God loves us to change us and to grow us and mature us. But God loves the weak, the outcast, the brokenhearted, the one who doesn't have it together. If our proclamation of the gospel doesn't reflect in some way that, what are we doing? I want us to conclude by considering our text in the view of the title of our series. First, looking back at our history. You know, this is our history. This is the history of Grace and Peace Presbyterian Church. It goes back a ways. Because you see, if you believe, God has opened a door of faith to you. God has opened the door of faith. You didn't. Oh, How many times can I, for a brief moment or a long period of time, think that I opened the door of faith? God opened the door of faith. He not only has the key to open the locked door, but at times, as you know, he just kicks it down. God opens the door. And yet there's often a gap between our confessional theology. You know, I I know that. And our practical theology. You see, sometimes there's a big difference between what we say we believe and how we live. In particular, our manner, our tone. We may be saying all the right words, but somehow there's a a jarness. There's a, a jarring. Because we may say God opened the door. We live as if we opened the door. See, there's a big and noticeable difference between people who have received Jesus and are resting and relying on him alone for salvation and people who give, sadly, the impression that they are resting and relying on themselves, who they are and what they do. My friends, what we proclaim first and foremost is what God has done. It's not what we must do. And if at any time we get the imperative out in front of the indicative, if we get the, the, the what we must do out in front of the statement of what God has done, there is no gospel. 
There is no good news. So looking back at our history, God has opened the door for us. Oh, how thankful we should be, how grateful we should be, how eager we should be that God would open the door for others. He opens the door. And second, moving forward in our mission, um, look at right before that. They declared all that God had done with them, translated a different way, through them. They, they just, they were so eager to report on all that God had done with them and through them. You know, it's the work of God and the work of man. It's the mysterious God's sovereignty, human responsibility. It's, they did a lot of stuff, but they knew that it was God doing it through them. What will we be able to say in the coming years that God has done with us or through us here at Grace and Peace? What can we say next year, five years, ten years? What can we say that God has done with us, through us, for his glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, for the spread of the gospel? So we we look back at our history, we move forward in our mission, but finally, whether we're looking back or looking ahead, we're called to keep our eyes on Jesus. Who's Jesus? The founder and perfecter, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Get that? He opens the door of faith, He gives us faith. He starts it. He finishes it. We keep our eyes on him. So my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's look back and let's give thanks. Let's look ahead and ask God to do what only he can do. But as you know, he does a lot of what he does through flawed, frail, weak, sinful fearful, stuttering, tripping, limping, men and women and boys and girls. And since Jesus is here with his church through the presence of a powerful person, let's ask the Father to give us the Holy Spirit for our provision of all of our needs, for our protection against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this narrative account that shows us quite a bit about that aspect of saving faith that is growing in faith discipleship, following Jesus. Oh, Father, may we be a people who strengthen one another by encouraging them, by warning them. Father, may we be a part of a church that is well-organized, that you provide the stability through godly leadership. And most importantly, Father, this is not our church. This is not my church. This is not, this is your church, Father. Have your way with your people. Help us to hold on loosely 
even to the great and good things here. Because we are waiting for that day when the church militant becomes the church triumphant. And all the struggle and sadness and difficulty will end. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to help us walk by faith in Jesus and not by sight in what we think we can do. Thank you, Father, for this church. May she always be here to be a light of the gospel for us and the nations. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.